Hello, everyone, to episode two of Canadian Meets the South. This time, I'll be reviewing the book How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America by Brian McClanahan. Uh, the, the book, as you can tell by the title, is about how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America, but it's also about three Supreme Court justices who helped him achieve that. Uh, Chief Justice John Marshall, Justice Joseph Story, and Justice Hugo Black. And uh, most of the book, I would say, for the, the first half and a little bit was about Alexander Hamilton. It starts with his, uh, his upbringing and how he fought in the American War for Independence. But most of the Hamilton part of the book was focused on what he said during the ratification debates in New York and then his actions as Secretary of the Treasury under George Washington, how these two th things conflict with each other. In the 1787 Philadelphia Convention, he actually was one of the delegates from New York, and he pushed for a, a strong central government. And Brian McClanahan goes over many of the things he said, and his authorship of the Federalist Papers, along with James Madison and John Jay, who were also centralizers. Um, James Madison would not be as of as a centralizing president later on. They would he would break with Hamilton later, but in 1787, 1788, they were they were allies who wanted a, a nationalist government rather than a decentralized federa federation. The whole point of the Constitutional Convention was to replace the Articles of Confederation with something stronger. And most of the the founding generation wanted a 
federal government, a true federal, not a centralizing government. And this is what they said, uh, the proponents of the Constitution in the ratifying debates across the 13 states all said that the states would be sovereign in areas that were not uh, uh, expressly forbidden to them and were not federal powers. Uh, you'd, you'd later see this embodied in the Tenth Amendment. Um, so that is what Alexander Hamilton as well had said in the Federalist Papers and in his speeches in the New York Ratifying Convention that the only powers that uh, the general government would have are those that are delegated to it in the Constitution. But you'd see later, during Washington's first term, that he would go back, uh, he would reverse himself on this. During, there are some really bad things that happened during George Washington's presidency that set a uh, precedent for the rest of United States history. One of them would be the signing of, uh, the, char of the charter of the first bank of the United States. Um, and the first bank wasn't really the first bank. There was the Bank of North America during the American War for Independence, which was chartered during uh, under the Articles of Confederation. They this bank was also unconstitutional, but uh, it was it was unconstitutional under the Articles of Confederation. So, but there was no executive branch or judicial branch of the of a, of the general government under the Articles of Confederation. Uh, there was just the legislative branch, the Continental Congress. And in, so Alexander Hamilton, as uh, the, as George Washington's Secretary of the Treasury, he was, he was chosen as a cabinet member because he was George Washington's aide to camp during the war. So George Washington really trusted him. And, but he had also picked Thomas Jefferson in his cabinet as secretary of state. And the two of them were ideologically opposites. Thomas Jefferson was a de decentralist and when the First Bank of the United States is passed through the Congress, 
uh, George Washington is ready to veto the bank. He he asked he asked James Madison, who was in the House of Representatives, to uh, for uh, a veto message to write up a veto message so that he could read it, no, so that he could he could come out with a veto message when he would when he would veto the first bank of the United States. And he had asked Thomas Jefferson to, to more thoroughly convince him that the bank, that the charter of a uh, national bank of the United States is unconstitutional. And Thomas Jefferson would say that there's no power delegated to the general government to create a national bank and he said that Amendment 12, which would become Amendment 10, the 10th Amendment, because uh, the first two uh, amendments in the Bill of Rights were, weren't ratified. Well, the second one was ratified in the early 90s as the 27th Amendment, but the... Uh, the Tenth Amendment, as we know it now, um, was the cornerstone of the United States Constitution. And so Alexander Hamilton is asked by George Washington to give a rebuttal. And he writes a, a, a lengthy rebuttal and actually admits that the bank is that the chartering a bank is not in the powers delegated to the general government but he comes up with the idea of implied powers although i'm pretty sure if i remember correctly from the book implied powers this idea didn't just pop up in 1791 by alexander hamilton uh, James Wilson of Pennsylvania uh, also believed in that, and I think that's he he was a firm supporter of the Bank of North America during the American War for Independence. So there's the bank. George Washington is convinced by Alexander Hamilton, and he signs that into law. But and. And during the second term, there's also there are also two major problems. Um, there were, there was George Washington's neutrality proclamation, and him putting down the Whiskey Rebellion. And uh, the the book kind of went it was complicated how Alexander Hamilton's role was in the Neutrality Proclamation. So I, I won't go there. Um, the, the book will do a much, a very good job at explaining it. But he convinced um, George Washington to send in the troops for, uh, to put down the Whiskey Rebellion in Western Pennsylvania back in 1794. And this sets a precedent because 
Andrew Jackson does, uh, he threatens to do the same thing during the nullification crisis. He drafts the Force Bill back in 1833 and asks Congress to pass it, which would give him the power to invade South Carolina to collect tariffs. And he didn't invade a state, but like, uh, so Andrew Jackson didn't actually invade South Carolina, but Abraham Lincoln did. And this precedent goes back to, um, goes back to Alexander Hamilton convincing George Washington to send in the troops to quell the Whiskey Rebellion in Pennsylvania. And many of these farmers in Pennsylvania, they, they thought that they were, they were opposing the same thing that they were opposing in, uh, in the War for Independence. No taxation without representation. Well, there was representation in this, but it was still uh, an oppressive tax. It, it wasn't actually going to be co collected, but the fact that people died you know, during this rebellion was was an, was an unfortunate occurrence and and um the invasion over tax collection would come back in with Abraham Lincoln now he uh, Alexander Hamilton died in 1803 he was killed in a duel with Aaron Burr and as Aaron Burr the sitting vice president of Thomas Jefferson was running for governor of New York and he, he had a deal with with uh, the Federalists in New York that if they helped him become governor he would he would create a, a northern confederacy with the New England states and secede from the United States. And obviously, Alexander Hamilton was a nationalist. He was a centralizer. He didn't really see himself as a New Yorker, but he was against this. And he helped make, he helped bring down uh, Aaron Burr. And as in, Aaron Burr lost the 1803 general. Uh, the 1803 election and they had the duel after and Aaron Burr killed Alexander Hamilton but even though he died uh, John Marshall who deeply admired him would, uh, who deeply admired Alexander Hamilton would go uh, would carry out Alexander Hamilton's policies uh, his nationalist centralizing policies as chief justice for 34 years. He was, uh, in 1801, it was clear that John, John Adams had lost the presidency. And as a lame duck, he would do his best to appoint several, no, to, to appoint judges, including at the Supreme Court. And he chose 
uh, John Marshall, who was his Secretary of State. And uh, John Marshall would be the Chief Justice. The Marshall Co Court would be the Chief Justice for um, several centralizing court decisions, including Marbury versus Madison, which established, I won't say it established judicial review because there was judicial review in 1796, but I don't rem remember the, the name of the, of the case, but it, it upheld the constitutionality of, a, of, of a federal law. But in Marbury versus Madison, uh, this struck down a federal law or part of it. It, it the uh, it was I believe Section Twenty Five of the Judiciary Act of of seventeen eighty nine, and uh, this striking down federal laws wasn't exactly in the United States Constitution. Now, of course, the Supreme Court was sold, sold as a check on the other two branches, the, the, three, the three branches of the federal government, the executive, the, judi the judiciary, and the legislative would check each other. Um, well, Thomas Jefferson believed that the states would also check the federal government there as a fourth leg. But uh, judicial review really is not on the uh, not on the not a, a delegated power to the United States general government. And You'd also have Cohen's v. Virginia, um, in which uh, it's, it's a it's a messy court decision that I wish I could tell you more about. Was two two brothers, the Cohens. They 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 were from. Okay, there were two states involved, and there was the District of Columbia. And I think the District of Columbia was uh, uh, disallowed um, the uh, this uh, uh, lottery tickets, and then the Cohens were from Maryland or something, and they were from Virginia. It was a messy one, but there was more centralization. I, this is embarrassing. <laughs> I I don't even remember all the details. There was there was also um, uh, oh there was also oh my goodness I'm losing the words the uh, the case with Maryland about the the bank. Uh, there were two questions to be answered in the Supreme Court decision. Was the central bank constitutional? And did Maryland have the authority to, to tax 
uh, the bank. And John Marshall said, yes, it was constitutional. And uh, no, it, Maryland did not have the power to do that. And then he came, it comes with this, uh, John Marshall comes up with the one people thesis, which is the idea that the United States constituted one people, but uh, we know that that's not true. Um, as <coughs> um, Brian McClanahan brings up St. George Tucker and John Taylor of Caroline. And uh, St. George Tucker is known as the foremost legal scholar on the United States Constitution. And John Taylor of Caroline was considered more Jeffersonian than Jefferson. And they both believed that the United States was a compact between nations, a league of nations. And so these were not one people. But you would see that Senator Daniel Webster and Justice Joseph Story believed in the one people thesis. Uh, Senator Daniel Webster, he's the the most famous, I would say, Federalist who became a Whig in the North. And he was, during the War of 1812, he was more of a states rights man because he was a sectionalist. He fa favored states rights when it suited his state and, and nationalism and centralization when it favored his state. So he, he was a sectionalist. But um, he, uh, but Joseph Story, who was appointed by James Madison, was not a Federalist. He's, he was a Republican, and, and James Madison thought that he would be a good Republican, but he made the mistake. He, he would later re regret appointing Joseph Story. Joseph Story uh, was influenced by John Marshall. John Marshall was like a father to him and would help influence him to become a Hamiltonian and would vote with uh, John Marshall almost all the time uh, in Supreme Court cases. And because Joseph Story was a Harvard law professor, he would he he would use his um, his status as a justice of the Supreme Court to come out with the book with a book on the Constitution of the United States, and he and this book would cement the idea that the United States was founded as one people. And Brian McClanahan ridicules the conservative establishment, like the Federalist Society today, for example, the conservative establishment of today, for seeing Joseph Story as an originalist. But he wasn't. He was a, a, a nationalist, and, who, and he helped. And his commentaries on the United States Constitution, that was his book, um, was a book that is read to this day 
and is considered originalist thinking, even though that's not that's not how it really is. And Abel Upshur, who was uh, John Tyler's Secretary of the Navy and Secretary of State before he before he was killed, um, wrote uh, um, wrote um, a work uh, refuting Joseph Story's commentaries on the Constitution. And uh, and then of course the final the final uh, justice Hugo Black you know, the final justice in the book. Grant McClanahan also goes through his upbringing how it's similar to John Marshall's upbringing. Hugo Black was from Alabama though not from Virginia but they they're both they were both Southerners, and Hugo Black was was a progressive. He he was he took Oscar Underwood's seat in uh, in Alabama uh, from for, I mean Alabama seat for the United States Senate because uh, Underwood had retired because. Uh, he he was against the Klan, and he believed there's no way he was going to win uh, Alabama, his seat in Alabama again, because of the Klan. And Hugo Black was a Klansman, and he was he did have admiration for for John Marshall because, and I mean. He would look to John Marshall later on, uh, when he became uh, a Supreme Court just justice. Uh, he heavily, uh, as a senator, he heavily supported Franklin Roosevelt for president in 1932 and 1936. And Franklin Roosevelt would repay him by offering him a seat on the United States Supreme Court. And in 1937 and black was saying is that okay you know i'm a klansman and then franklin roosevelt said some of my best friends are klansmen it's okay so, oh i'm you know that's that's a paraphrase but yeah um he was so he he ascended to the supreme court and hugo black voted there there were a couple of cases um, okay, I should say first why Hugo Black is important, because he's his uh he solidifies the idea of the incorporation of the states. Now, uh, using the Fourteenth Amendment, incorporating the Bill of Rights against the states, because, as you know, um, the United States Bill of Rights was meant to restrict. The federal government, not the states, and you can know you know this because when um, the Bill of Rights was adopted in 1791, uh, three states—Connecticut, Massachusetts, and New Hampshire—had state-established churches, but a uh, 
a state-established church would be against the, the First Amendment. But because it was... There's, but there's no contradiction. There's no... The state-established churches were legal of Connecticut, Massachusetts, and New Hampshire because they were state. I'm, um, as in, the federal government had no authority to establish a, a church according to the First Amendment. Then there's the 14th Amendment, which came, which was passed during Reconstruction. It was in response, it was after um, the, uh, the, uh, the 1866 Civil Rights Act, I think, was, was, uh, killed by the Supreme Court, was struck down by the Supreme Court as unconstitutional. Andrew Johnson, the president, actually vetoed it, but I think they overruled him. I'd have to check that. But the 14th Amendment's uh, purpose was to give uh, states, uh, give the people of uh, the former slaves, uh, was to help former slaves because they were treated really bad. And uh, there's this clause, equal the equal protections and immunities clause, equal privileges. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm not American. You you should uh, you should go easy on me. But the equal protections. And immunities clause was was be used by Hugo Black to incorporate the Bill of Rights against the states. See, in the slaughterhouse cases, which were which were cases in which uh, in the uh, some butchers in Louisiana would would uh, sue the state of Louisiana um, because. Uh, for unsafe environment, for, uh, they had they had done something, um, and they would the the butchers would use the the Fourteenth Amendment, um, for uh, their um, hoping that the Fourteenth Amendment would incorporate the Fifth Amendment, uh, the, uh, the uh the government not depriving life, liberty, and property from. Well, without due process, and the slaughterhouse, uh, the 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 court, the Supreme Court ruled against it, and some of these justices were appointed by Lincoln, and these and these justices they were they were not exact, they were not states' rights men, they were centralizers who, who of course, if they were appointed by Lincoln, they obviously. Uh, shared his centralizing beliefs, but these men who uh, the Supreme Court justices they would well some of them were appointed by Lincoln. I think one guy was was appointed by Buchanan and he voted he voted against, uh, against the the butchers. So the butchers lost that five, five to four, and because the justices realized that. 
that it the the point uh, that the Fourteenth Amendment uh, was not was not there. The Equal Protections and Immunities Clause was not there to to incorporate the Bill of Rights. It was there for to help former slaves, and but and you'd see the you'd see decades later, Hugo Black would would uh, basically rewrite history because even though he he did like John Marshall John Marshall had ruled in Barron v Baltimore back in 1832 or 33 and it was unanimous um unanimously his his court the, the other justices would ruled unanimously in uh that the bill of rights would not be used against the states and uh John Marshall this is uh one of the few times he gets it correctly if uh, according to Brian McClanahan would uh, he would uh he would say the Bill of Rights is only f is only meant to restrict the general government um Barron v Baltimore this man Barron was suing the state of uh, the city of Baltimore which is in Maryland for violating either the fourth or the fifth amendment but um uh john marshall and his court would go against would would rule in favor of baltimore so decades after the 14th amendment uh hugo black rewrites history saying that the states that uh separation of church and state was always a core factor of uh, a core value a core principle in the United States Constitution since since the first amendment since the bill of rights but as i've mentioned before there were state established churches in 1791 and even during 1776 there were even more all 13 states had there 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 was there you could you couldn't say that there were there was separation of church and state in really any of the thirteen states in seventeen seventy six what he would what uh Hugo Black would do was use Jefferson and Madison Jefferson and Madison pushed for um in i think seventeen seventy seven Jefferson and then seventeen seventy nine Madison and then six years later it would happen and, uh the establishment of the, the the disestablishment of the Church of England in Virginia. Uh, separation of church and state is a Virginian term. It comes from Thomas Jefferson in his letter to the Darnbury Baptists. I don't remember how to pronounce their name. Um, and they were from, the Baptists were from Connecticut, and they were saying, "Isn't that that separation of church and uh, that?" Uh, Religious freedom was great, and then Thomas Jefferson would use the term separation of church and state, the wall of separation of church and state, to refer to religious, to how religious freedom was achieved. And he said it would be great, and hopefully all of the states will one day have that. But Hugo Black is, was rewriting history by saying this is a core principle of, core American principle, this, separation of church and state, but 
it, it's not. Um, because there were, yeah, there were state established churches in 1791, or even 1776, and more in, in 1776. And he he uses incorporation of the of the Bill of Rights because uh, because this was in in 1963 when he finally has his way. He he's voted a couple of times in favor of incorporation of the Bill of Rights. He it was uh, I believe in New Jersey or New York that he that um, New no, New Jersey there was a law to that all students should be bused. Federal funds, uh, state funds should be used to, to bus all students, including private ones, private school students, and some, some of which were Catholic. And he would, and because of the doctrine of separation of church and state um, was being violated, he said, uh, Hugo Black ruled that, uh, voted against New Jersey, um, the New Jersey state government, from from giving funds to Catholic schools. And, you know, he was a Klansman and a good progressive Klansman who hates Catholics, well, really hates most immigrants, many of whom were Catholics, hates Jews and hates blacks. But his, I think his, uh, his strongest hatred was for Catholics. And you would see, you would see him promoting this false historical narrative of separation of church and state from the beginning then and really because of his hatred because he's using the first amendment but he may be using the first amendment but he believed in all of the bill of right that all of the bill of rights should be incorporated uh never <laughs> because of the 14th amendment never mind the fact that uh the 14th amendment wasn't legally ratified Ohio and Oregon, I believe, they they rescinded their ratifications when they learned that uh, the southern states were being blackmailed into ratifying the 14th Amendment in order to get back into the Union and have congressional representation. But the Washington, D.C. passed it. And, uh, yeah, the 14th Amendment was there to stay. But uh, the incorporation of the, of the Bill of Rights was not an intended outcome of the 14th Amendment. And uh, this, uh, the final chapter of Brian McClanahan's book is Think, act, think Locally, Act Locally. One of, uh, Washington is a mess because of, the, of Alexander Hamilton and his disciples. Uh, and the court, including the, yeah, including the courts, uh, like the court, uh, justice, Supreme Court justices, John Marshall, Joseph Story, and Hugo Black, and you should work to improve your situation locally at the state and local level. You should fight because Washington is a mess, and you have you have these this idea of uh, this nationalist mood. Where Americans keep saying one uh, one nation indivisible, and um, and I have a Second Amendment right, even though 
most state constitutions have 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 a, a right to bear arms. So this uh, uh this it it's a uh, the culture has uh has shifted towards centralization and over the years it's been and uh the the main the, the last point of Brian McClanahan's book was to think locally and act locally try to make uh changes to your government at the state and local level because the federal government is a mess and it wants more and more power um so now let's get on to the short Canadian perspective. Uh, recently, the the Supreme Court in Canada had uh, had ruled on the constitutionality of the federal government applying the carbon tax on certain states, and they and it was a six three. Um, majority in favor of the federal government um, be, and because not not just in in uh, the, the chief justice had written that not only is climate change a real threat but the the federal government must do anything in its power because uh, can can and can do anything in its power to ha it has the power to do anything in order to ensure the safety of Canadians because um, of the Peace, Order, and Good Government Clause in Constitution Act 1867, Section 91, uh, the last the last, last sentence, last clause of Section 91. So with a clause that says, that ensures, quote-unquote, peace, order, and good government, well, the, uh, that implies that... The federal government has virtually limitless powers, and that that's similar to, really similar to, um, Alexander Hamilton's view, um, uh, implied powers. Because um, even though we don't have an equivalent of the Tenth Amendment in Canada, um, federal government ha should not be intruding on provincial jurisdiction. There are some shared jurisdictions, such as agriculture and and uh, immigration, as as laid out in Section ninety five of the Constitution Act of eighteen sixty seven, but in exclusive provincial jurisdiction, the uh, federal government really shouldn't be. Um, interfering with provincial, with this jurisdiction, with this, but uh, with um, federal, the federal government always wants to grow. It's been uh, growing for. People. Point out that um, really um in. For conservatives, the big uh, the boogeyman is uh just uh. Justin Trudeau's father, Pierre Trudeau, who was a a centralizer, and he Pierre Trudeau did uh, 
many centralizing things, including uh, the National Energy Act back in 1980s. And uh, many, um, you, you can say, um, economically interventionist, interventionist policies. And he spent a lot of money. He was a big spender and they were, uh, the Canadian federal government was in big debt after he left. Um, but when I, when I look to, um, Americans, to the, to the United States, I know that Alexander Hamilton wasn't a southerner. John Marshall and Joseph, uh, Jen and Hugo Black were. But when I look to Canada and I'm, not to the United States, um, I would say the majority of Southerners believe in decentralization and st states' rights, and that's that's what I look to. Um, and Alexander Hamilton is the big boogeyman of American uh, history. Uh, he is the original centralizer. I mean, in I could point to several figures who are centralizers in in Canada, such as John A. Macdonald and William Lyon Mackenzie King. Um, but uh, but um, the infl Alexander Hamilton's program, which Henry Clay would call the um, the American system, uh, which was which would include high tariffs. Um, uh, a national bank and and then using the the money from the high tariffs and like and I guess the national the national bank to fund internal improve improvements which would be federal infrastructure and uh, this would uh, and as Abraham Lincoln was a disciple of Henry Clay he would also have this American system would push for policies similar to the American system during his presidency. And John A. Macdonald believed in the national policy, which uh, th there was no Bank of Canada back in when he was alive, but he did believe in high tariffs against the United States and then using the tariffs to fund things like the Canadian Pacific Railway, uh, which would connect Canada from coast to coast. Um, and he was the most dominant political figure in Canadian history while he was alive. He had defeated Alexander Mackenzie um, in 1878, campaigning on his national policy. Well, that's all I, I have to say for today. Um, maybe I could, I could go further in, into uh, this. Into I could keep rambling on about Canada, but this was, this was just mostly what I'm recording, mostly what I got out from Brian McClanahan's book, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. I, I listened to the audiobook. It's, I think, exclusively available on Audible. But, uh, if you, uh, if you liked, um, 
if you if you thought that some of the some of the information was uh, was good information, uh, you might want to enjoy the book. I'm not, I'm not I don't have an affiliate link or anything for for the book, but uh, uh, yeah, I just review books on this podcast. So thanks for listening. I'll hope to do at least one podcast per month. There will probably be more, more than there will be probably be months like this month where I'll do more than one. But um, I'll see how how much time it goes. It depends on the rate I've, at which I f- finish books. But yes, thank you for listening to to uh, this episode of Canadian Meets the South.